revolution never come with a warning. A revolution never sends you an omen. A revolution just arrived like the morning. Bring the alarm, we come to wake up the snoring. They're telling you to never worry about the future. They're telling you to never worry about the torture. They're telling you that you will never see the horror. Spend it all today and we will build you tomorrow. Three Bank accounts in Bahamas Wall Street crime will never send you to the slammer Tell all the children in the arms of the mamas The F-15 is a homicide bomber TV commercial for a pop of pill culture Drug companies circling like a vulture Amaraki babies with the G.I. Joe father Ten years from now is anybody gonna bother you? Fire! Never come with a warning, a revolution. Everyone addicted to the same nicotine. Everyone addicted to the same gasoline. Everyone addicted to a technicolor screen. Everybody trying to get their hands on the same green. From the banks of the river to the banks of the greedy. All of the rich is taken back by the needy. We come from the country and we come from the city. Play us on a record, you can play us on a CD. All the shit you're giving us is fertilizer. The seeds that you planted, you can never brutalize. Tell a corporation, you can never globalize. Like Peter Tosh said, legalize it. Girls and boys here, the bass and the treble. Rumble in the speakers in and make you wanna rebel. Throw your hands up, take it to another level. And you never, ever, ever make a deal with the devil. Yeah, fire.
CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Inkstead Show, the radio show where we talk about comics. Mm. Um, are you settled, Colin? Mm. I'll take that as a yes. Uh, our guest this week is Peter Cooper. Um, is, is it pronounced Cooper? Yep. Okay. Um, and uh, the song was uh, Michael Fronte and Spearhead, Yell Fire, which kind of feels apropos for the um, for your work. And the talking about the revolution and I guess uh political dissidents. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um Peter has a lot of books. Um most notably, most recent is the latest issue of World War Three Illustrated, issue number thirty nine, which you've been doing for coming on thirty years now. Almost. Almost with uh your uh partner in crime uh, Seth Tobakman. As well, your uh, I guess your latest collection is, uh, or uh, I don't want to use the phrase, your graphic novel. Uh, Stop forgetting to remember. Um, what else we got? Speechless, New York, New York, The Jungle, and a whole slew of Kafka adaptations. Anything I'm missing? Oh yes, the system. <laughs> the system. <laughs> yeah. that, you know. It's been many years. So. I, I could probably just go through the bibliography at the back of Speechless, but... No, it's all right. That's that's boring. There we go. It's online that, somewhere, so... There we go. Go to... Uh, what's your website? Is it Peter... Is it Cooper Art, isn't it? No, it's PeterCooper.com. PeterCooper.com, spelled K-U-P-E-R. Um, so, I guess we'll jump into it. Uh, you've got a lot of stuff to cover, like we're saying. There's a lot of comics. I kind of want to start out by talking about uh, what got you into comics and kind of... Your development in comics, because you, it, it's interesting looking at your background, because you went to the Pratt, you studied under Howard Chaikin, or not studied, I guess. Uh, I worked for. You worked for and was the whipping boy of yes, uh, Howard Chaikin. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, So let's start out, what was your draw into comics? Um, probably, you know, when I was quite young, I was reading Marvel, and... Uh, you know, Thor, I think, was, was one of the, the first ones. And I like, you know, anything by Jack Kirby. Uh, and then um, I, I, I sort of faded. And then I, uh, my father had a sabbatical year, and we lived in Israel for a year when I was 10. And you were on and a kibbutz, right? Well, I'm sorry? You were on a kibbutz in No, no, no? I lived okay. in Haifa. My father was teaching at a university oh, there. Okay. And uh, we just, they... It was just the regular old, you know, lived in an apartment building. And while I was there, I was grabbing anything that was in English, and comics were certainly that. I was reading a lot of, I think, Richie Rich and uh, Little Dot <laughs> and uh, um, and Batman. And it was I was on that line where I wasn't just being a Marvelite, as I had been. And uh, when I got back from Israel, um, I found that uh, the only person I could relate to was Seth Tabachman, and he and I had grown up together We from as far back as first grade, and lived a street apart. Our fathers both were university professors, and uh, he was into comics and had a, you know, like a real serious collection, and I just, it just opened the door on, um, I started looking at him, and, and it it something rang. I think I saw a Captain America origin issue, and just loved it. And in 1970, he, I guess we had heard about a comic convention in Detroit, uh, the Detroit Triple Fanfare, and we actually got his parents to take us to Detroit. And so in 1970, when I was 11, uh, we, you know, they were getting to meet Bernie Wrightson and Jim Stranko, and I saw my first 
underground comics material. I saw Promethean Enterprises, which was a fanzine that had Crumb in it, and Rick Griffin and uh, Seth bought a uh, tabloid of uh, Trash Man by Spain. <laughs> <laughs> totally floored me. I just like looked at because he was straddling those those worlds between that sort of action art and then you know but but then they're fighting against the police yeah and uh so so it was this amazing it was amazing to see these things happen and then i think it was maybe 19 uh right in there we actually started doing a fanzine we interviewed some some people um cleveland had which is where i grew up had a pretty solid uh comic scene um with uh, don and maggie thompson were there who went on to do the uh comics uh buyer's guide and uh, there was a number of other comics people. Tony Isabella was there. Um, people are still sort of, you know, writing about or, or participating in comics. And they gathered together in a small group. And uh, we got just were really, you know, got very serious about it very quickly. And, the, um, and I had, had the opportunity to meet artists at conventions very early on when they were really small. Mm-hmm. And uh, then uh, I think it was Seth and I were coming back from buying comics one day and uh, a kid saw us with comics and said, hey, there's a guy up the street who has comics. And it, it turned out that guy was Harvey Picar. <laughs> and this was in 1970 or 71, so Harvey was a guy who worked in a hospital who'd never written a comic before. And um, he, we, we rang his doorbell. He let us in. Just you know, We said, we understand you have comics. Can we come up? And he was like, oh, I guess so. <laughs> And we just, you know, literally just, you know, walked in, and then he showed us back in. And in the back room, he had this incredible seventy-eight RPM record collection, and uh, he pulled out an original piece of art by Crumb that um, was uh, one of was a, the first version of what was going to later be. I, I think was it Head Comics. Uh, anyway, it was it was just this cartoon character peeing in a toilet with his genitals hanging out, and it just completely blew my mind just the combination of cartoon and genitals how, how old and were you prob- uh, 11 12 <laughs> and uh fortunately i had older sisters who had boyfriends who would bring underground comics into our home and also the hippie culture at that time there was just this sort of uh, the conspiracy of let's say a store owner who could have gotten into some pretty major trouble i mean these days you know it, that's happened more than once that uh, would sell me underground comics when I was underage, and that was an incredibly, you know, formative thing to see Von Bodie and uh, and all the, the Crumb books. And every time something new came in, this guy would go, you know, Psst, I got these comics, and you know, I'd quickly <laughs> buy them. And uh, but I was at the same time reading superhero comics all through the until the mid '70s, and uh, probably. I guess in, the, in you know about seventy five or so, I started to lose interest in it, and I was starting to you know smoke more pot, or you know I was starting to think that this was some childish thing to be put away. But then, of course, pot and underground comics work beautifully together, and I just I had uh, probably a a dividing line in my life where I was just about to call it quits on the comic scene, and I got mono, which is you know a traditional kind of high school disease where you. I just dropped into bed for about a month, and all I did in there was read comics and start drawing. And then I, I got out of bed and said, I know what I want to do. And, that's, and, and it's all the downhill from there. Oh, yeah, and I, uh, I know what I want to do. I want to be unemployed most of the time <laughs> and struggle and uh, be told no very often. A lifetime of no. Yes. Um, 
Now, I was reading somewhere that you would trade records with Crumb for comics or something. Well, it was one incident, and this again came through Harvey, just another one of those crazy, like, you, you can't make this up type of deals. I found in the basement of uh, my parents' house, I mean, when I was a kid, um, the previous owner had left his collection of 78 RPM records. Why? I don't know. He just left them. They, we were having a yard sale, and uh, my, my parents said, oh, you know, those can be yours. You know, you call the guy up and make sure he doesn't want them. I did, and he was like, yeah, they're yours, kid. And I had them sitting outside, and it was like a sunny day, and there were a couple of them, you know, sitting at an angle. And some record collector showed up and saw him and just grabbed one of them up, ran inside, and, and said, where's the telephone book? And put a telephone book on it because they were warping in the sun. And it turned out they were pretty valuable 78 RPM records. And I remembered, oh, yeah, Harvey has, has some of those. So I called him up. I didn't sell any to, this, to the collector because as a collector myself, I smelled, collector, wait, there could be value here. And uh, Harvey came over and he said, yeah, you know, I think some crumb would like some of these. And he took about 15 of them. And I said, listen, I'll, I'll make you a trade. I was doing a fanzine with Seth. And uh, we'll, we'll do an interview. We'll, we'll write out questions for Crumb. And um, we, so we typed up all these questions. And he was going to trade the interview and, uh, and one piece of original art for 1578 RPM records. So we typed up these questions. And they were things like, you know, can you give us a rundown on the history of underground comics with a giant space for him to write in and what are your hobbies and what kind of pen nib do you use and we sent it off and i forget how long went by but it was quite a while but then then harvey called me up one night and said yeah i got the stuff for you and i rode my bike up to him and in the interview where it said you know can you give us a complete rundown on the history of underground comics with this giant space he wrote no (laughs) (laughs) and for hobbies it was something like uh doing lots of drugs eating a lot of food fucking a lot of women and girls and eventually dying. And you know, he's really, he had all these really funny answers and that, that did or didn't fit the space we left for him. And, our very, and he, he ended the interview with saying um, that uh, we should enjoy comics more, but don't take them so goddamn seriously. Comic and sci-fi fans of the world get laid. And we, uh, I, when we went to, to print it in our zine, I was having my dad's secretary type it up and she stopped at the first fuck, and um, <laughs> fortunately, my mom was kind enough to type it up so we could get it, you know, like offset printed. And we printed up a hundred copies of the the interview in our our zine. It's called Gaslight. It was the Graphic Art Society magazine of Cleveland, and uh, the we printed a hundred copies, and they miraculously sold out. Which the last issue hadn't sold as many copies. It was we couldn't fully figure it out because I, I wasn't in 1972. I was still a little unclear on who Robert Crumb was, and then later, or I was 71, and then maybe in 72, I just had one of those awakenings and and just, you know, saw this whole world of what he was doing. But he came through Cleveland and came over with, he was traveling with the Cheap Suit Serenaders at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, they were this band that he was traveling with, and he came over and they went through all the records and we made another trade. He did a cover for our, our zine and trade for, I don't know, like, a handful of records, maybe maybe it was 40 records or something like that. And at the time I thought, you know, he's kind of getting a good deal with the 40 <laughs> records for one little drawing. But And, I, you know, I da- died a thousand tiny deaths thinking about my behavior around him. Oh, but I went over there and he hadn't even started on the, on the drawing yet. And he said, ah, you know, sit down, I'll, I'll, I'll get to it now. And he gave me his sketchbooks to look at. And I just got 
a complete course in art crumb looking at his sketchbooks and i said look you know that's a lot of a lot of records for the one drawing how about if you can i get you know maybe can i uh, photocopy some of these these drawings and, and and print them and he was like uh okay and he he gave me the sketchbook which i rode off on my bicycle holding in one hand and went up to the library and photocopied a bunch of it and i ended up printing a zine called mellow tunes that had uh that was made up of those sketches and then a reprinting of the interview with Crumb. And again, I discovered this sort of whole world of people who loved his work, as, and I was becoming one of them more and more. And uh, I actually printed a second issue of it and then had uh, a great experience of remorse and threw them all out. So I, I, I sold the first handful of them and then threw out, I guess I probably printed a, maybe 1,500 copies, and I threw out about 1,000. Wow. That's a, a a young a young age to get so involved. It's <laughs> it's a, a lifelong love of the yeah. Well, it was really, it was pretty you know it was pretty fortunate because I had uh, Seth Tabachman's enthusiasm and and the people that were in Cleveland that just incidentally happened to be there and uh, the comic conventions being in in striking distance uh, so that I we were. You know, sort of like my year was wrapped around getting ready to go to the New York Comic Convention, and it was they were so small at the time that it it was a you know gave me the opportunity to meet people doing this, and it made it seem like a possibility. You know, I could meet Bill Bill Gaines and you know interview him. Seth and I interviewed Bill Gaines. We interviewed Jack Kirby and Neil Adams and uh, Von Bodie and a lot of all these people and. I mean, I, I only wish I had better questions at the time. <laughs> but so sometimes we did. Seth was was uh, in, infinitely wiser than I was, and had had better, more sort of, you know. We, I think we interviewed Russ Heath, who had done all these war comics, and he Seth was asking him pointed questions about doing war comics that might be glorifying war. <laughs> and you know, when he was about fifteen, I was like. Go on, girl. <laughs> and uh, it was, it was, you know, I was listening to some of these old interviews. On I have them on these dying cassettes, and I was like, wow. And our voices are real high, and you know, just cracking before you know we hadn't entered puberty yet. Oh, I'd love to hear that. Um, when did you guys decide to go to the Pratt, and what was the decision with going there? Uh, I um, uh, moved to New York for a job in animation in uh, 1977. Seth had already moved here uh, to go to film school at NYU, and uh, I came to New York uh, on my. I went. To, I had gone to Kent State for a year before I, I, I started school when I was eighteen, um, just on the young edge of the birthday cycle. And so, uh, um, on spring break, I came to New York and um, went looking for. Any job I could find in animation, I, I wanted to get to New York, and I wanted to get rolling in some way. And some animation house said that they would give me a job. They were working on, I think it was Raggedy Ann and Andy at the time, and needed you know, a million people to paint blue backgrounds. So the guy said, okay, you're, you know, I got a job for you. you know, come this summer. And I moved to New York for this job, and I came knocking on the guy's door. He had no idea who I was, and he... You know, sort of vaguely told me to call him in six or seven weeks, and I called him for I don't know eight months every every period of time, 
and I looked for other work in animation. I got some little bits of illustration work, but it was clear I was utterly ill-equipped. I, I, I didn't have any particularly uh, any great talent in, in, the, in the drawing area, and I was really just starting then to seriously try to get my chops together. So uh, I just thought I, I need schooling. And right around the time I was getting into school, I bumped into Howard Shaken, and I had met Howard when he was 19 and I was uh, 12. And he was just getting into the field. And so I saw him every year at the comic conventions as he made his way up and had done Star Wars at this point. And uh, he said he was between assistants. And he, had, he because he incidentally knew me from all these years, and I told him I was, you know, in New York doing this, trying to be an artist, and uh, he, he told me to come by and gave me a shot. And uh, it was a brutal early period <laughs> because I really had so little skill. And he both needed more skill from me and also just as a chop-busting kind of guy. And it was, so it was a real crash course for me in, in learning a lot of technical ability. And right in there, I also, in my attempt to find some kind of work, I um, went to Harvey Comics, and I figured I could perhaps pull off inking, and I got a job at Richie Rich, and I inked Richie Rich for a year and a half while I was working for Howard, and then school started, so I was kind of part-time in school and, and part-time um, working, and then, um, or full-time working. And uh, Seth found that uh, the film deal was so complicated. You know, it was just, it was so hard to make films. It was, they were so expensive and crews and, and incredible organization. He just, he kind of rediscovered comics himself and decided that he joined me at Pratt. And uh, it was there after maybe, let's see, in 1979 that we started to piece together doing, decided we wanted to maybe get back to doing a fanzine or something like that. And especially at that point, there, the whole underground comic scene had collapsed, and what was left was like heavy metal. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that with the collapse of head shops, for, you know, which was a major form of distribution for them, then uh, there was no way to... There, it, just, it just had dried up. And we were still doing, in, interested in that kind of thing, and there was, yet there was no outlet. And we just thought, you know, we're going to wait around for an outlet, or are we going to you know, do something about it? And um, it because of our experience with fanzines, it, it didn't seem so, you know, like such a leap to self-publish. There was also a lot of artwork that we were seeing um, on the streets, and in some cases from other students at Pratt, that we that we wanted to to gather as well. And some of it was just would be like a poster on a on a lamppost, and uh, that there there was a lot of art being done on the streets in New York as we were rolling up to having Reagan be president. Ronald Reagan, yeah. for those who, <laughs> it's been such a long time. Um, and, you know, we had, the, this, the, there was a hostage crisis in Iran, you know, like 444 days of, of the hostages, and it looked like we might be, you know, starting World War III, so that's where the title came from. What, what point did your work become so political? Had it always been like that, or...? Uh, you know, it, it wasn't. I, 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 I fiddled around with a lot of different things. I, I guess I, more particularly, I, the work I was drawn to ended up being political. And I wasn't as much of a conscious decision of I, gotta, I have to be political as uh, I loved German Expressionism. I loved the, uh, the, con- the underground comics that were, you know, like last Gasp was publishing Slow Death, and there was all these, you know, eco-comics. And I guess I was really drawn to these stories that seemed to go somewhere. And I, found, I was finding that the fantasy 
material was falling away, and that especially with the kind of urgency that that the atmosphere in New York had at that point, where it was really it was pretty down and dirty in New York, with there was the city was still coming out of having had um, had a gone bankrupt, and uh, there there was uh, just a, a general atmosphere of. Um, it, it was a kind of, it felt like a dangerous time, and with the Cold War in full swing, it, it just like, well, whenever I thought about what I wanted to do, it seemed somewhat frivolous to spend too much time doing things that didn't at least respond to that, but, which isn't to say I then didn't do tons of things that were not directly about that. I did a lot of illustration work when I was starting out that was just trying to be employed, and uh, I did... Uh, God, I did a cat book. One of my first books was a, a bunch of linoleum prints uh, illustrating a Robert E. Howard story. Wow. And so I I'm, I'm kind of messed around with things, but I kept finding that the one consistent thing that I wanted to do was more subject matter-based, that I wanted to do stories that I felt like I won't feel like I just stood by while everything went to hell in a handbasket. And it was so, it's so much work to do comics that I just, in order to have the sustain to even do a short piece, I felt like I wanted it to say something. Where, did you have any connections with the early punk rock scene in New York? Um, not, not especially. I mean, I, I went to CBGB's uh, and, and Max's Kansas City occasionally and, and found, felt fairly alienated. I never felt sort of part of any of those scenes. I always was confused by them. They, the music seemed too loud most of the time, and most of the people seemed so much hipper than me, and, and <laughs> I just, you know, I felt like I wasn't dressing especially hip, and everybody just looked like they were in on something that I, I couldn't understand, and I tried wearing dark sunglasses at night, and I just felt blind, and and so I just, I've, I've generally always felt tragically unhip, and and uh, that, that and not part of, of any of those kinds of scenes, but I listened to a cross-section of, you know, pretty you know, some of it fairly poppy, uh, you know, Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson and things like that. Um, I mean, music has always been a, a fairly important part or a part of the oomph in while, while working. I've always, as often as possible, had music be, you know, part of what, what I'm listening to while working for inspiration. It keeps you going. Uh, yeah, tremendously. On that note, why don't we do a music break? Okay. What would you like to hear? Uh, gee, I forget what I sent you as, as the possibles. Uh, I got the... Uh, well, how, how about I'm a loser, since I'm speaking of being tragically... <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is Inksteads. We'll be right back with Peter Cooper, and we're going to play a little... Uh, it's like 1996 all over again. Uh, Beck. Sleep on the love seat. So it came saying I'm insane to complain about a shotgun. 
music with a phony gas chamber Cause one's got a weasel and other's got a flag One's on the pole, shove the other in the bag With the rerun shows and the cocaine nose jug The daytime crap of the folk singer's club He hung himself with a guitar string A slab of turkey neck and it's hanging from a pigeon wing Forget right if you can't relate Trade the cash for the beat, for the body, for the heat And my time is a piece of wax Falling on a termite It's choking on the splinters. CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Inkstead Show, the radio show where we talk about comics. My guest is Peter Cooper. Um, we were talking about comics and politics and whatnot. Uh, that was uh, Beck, Loser, off of... Oh, I can't remember the name of the album. Mellowfield? That's probably it. That's a better memory than mine. It's I like, could be wrong. <laughs> that, that Canadian air thins out everything, and I forget everything. There <laughs> Um, I was just looking on your Drodger, Drodger, um, and your uh, gallery of yourself, and uh, looking through at your wasted time and self-flagellation. Do you find yourself punishing yourself for your work? Perpetually. Perpetually. This is part of the deal. You know, there's the wishing I did something different in some book that will dog me until... I get the opportunity to fix it. Uh, there's, there's just you know you, you name all the different ways. You know, I wish I worked harder sometimes and less hard other times. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, so it's it's it's, it's a, it, that's a perpetual uh, human condition state. Now, I guess we were just talking about World War Three, uh, illustrated, and why don't we chat a little bit about the new book, um, the Silent Issue? Why the choice to do uh, all silent? Well, I had moved to uh, Mexico for uh, two years, and I was just getting back from there. And so uh, there was a combination. I, the, the, I started working on it when we were in the roll-up for the, the current U.S. elections, and 
we're coming out of the Bush years with this incredibly long eight-year period. And I felt like I wasn't ready to address everything that had happened over the years, and we'd certainly been doing that in the magazine anyway. And I, so I wanted to have an issue that would get a little air in it uh, and would be a kind of a before whatever was coming next and uh, um, would give us room to, to not have it be like, okay, if you're going to pick a theme, what's going to be the theme that, that could encapsulate this time period? Since I was had been in Mexico, then there was also the issue of language, and I was I really enjoyed the fact that the wordless comics I did worked so well when I was encountering people who didn't speak English. So it it struck me as being a good mode, uh, a, a good way. It's not exactly a subject, but a a uh, way a delivery system by by picking wordless, it would it would get people to uh, have that be the thing that holds it together as a theme. And uh, I thought also insanely that this would be an easier issue to edit <laughs> because there wouldn't, I wouldn't be talking about every word and parsing it all out and having to look at, you know, fact check. And uh, it turned out it was a triple hard because when I wanted to explain to somebody what I wanted them to adjust, I ended up having to do drawings a lot of the time to clarify it. And, and it was just, it just, it took longer than any issue I've probably edited, and uh, um, but you know it was it, it was one of those experiences where, as almost every issue of World War Three is, and I I'm kicking myself somewhere in the middle and wondering why the hell I'm still doing it, and then at the end go ah oh, that's so great I'm so glad I did it and in in several more months I'll start imagining doing another issue, or a year. <laughs> it doesn't have a set in stone. Uh release schedule uh well we try to be annual at this point i mean annual seems to be what we can pull off considering that you know there's no the motivator is not it's certainly not financial and it's just a matter of us deciding we're going to get together and do it and a year is i think a comfortable period of time to get an issue together uh and not somewhere between rushing and also just if you want to get people to work it into their schedules between making a living then that that tends to work out pretty comfortably Colin made an interesting remark during the uh, the the music break about uh, you know do you have the same complaints with the new administration new complaints new in- um, issues of interest you know we're we're it's still so fresh that uh, I'm 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 awaiting you know I'd really rather take uh, the position of seeing what's going to happen before I. I'm, I'm, my my uh, my back isn't up against the wall. It's like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> it's it's such an extreme different. I mean, it was so extreme under under Bush and Cheney and and Rove and those that cabal of uh, you know just the mafiosos that you, no matter what. I mean, to, virtually every day looking at the news is a relative breath of fresh air. Uh, in in you know as juxtaposed to the Bush administration where every time I read the paper, it was like, oh, my God, you know, they're dismantling the Constitution as fast as they can. They're, you know, you, you didn't have any idea how quickly they were going to chew away at the Bill of Rights. And, you know, when, when somebody's going to come knocking on your door at the rate they were, they were moving. Uh, with Obama, I certainly don't feel that, uh, that level of um, threat. But then again, you know, there's a lot more that can happen, in, in, including the people who don't want him to, 
to do well and and uh, what may occur from that. I'm I, at this point. I'm still my fingers are, are crossed that he makes it through four years or eight years without being assassinated. <laughs> Sadly. Uh. When Bush left, there was a common complaint amongst stand-up comics that they were losing a great source of material. Did you have any feelings like that? Um, like source of inspiration? So. You know, there's going to be a degree to which when, you, when you're really up against something, somebody like Bush and Cheney, there's something to write about. And, I mean, it, it, there's a real fire in your belly at all times. But there's not, you know, since we, we're, we're at, it at this precipice so that there's so much to talk about, Regardless of who's in power, that 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 fire isn't going away. I mean, I can be talking about the fact that you know, in, environmentally speaking, we're you know so close to the edge and a tipping point that you know we're talking about survival issues, and and there, there's there's a ton to talk about with something like that. But um, it's it's less of the where I want to get get in there and draw. Uh, Obama or Biden and, you know, with the fervor that I had for Cheney and Bush. Little Mr. Richie Bush. <laughs> A perfect fit. A perfect fit. Well, that brings the, to your more most recent work. We're going to talk about the, the book about your time in Mexico, um, where really international politics, there's, there's still a lot happening outside of even American involvement, I guess. Um, yeah, there, there was this, a very bizarre um, uh, circumstance that um, I moved to a town. When we, we left the United States in 2006, and the primary reason was for our, I had a nine-year-old, have a nine-year-old, had a nine-year-old daughter who's now 12, and we wanted her to get a second language and basically kind of replicate the experience I had in when my father moved us to Israel, which is aside from the different language it's the lift the needle up drop drop her into a culture that is outside the united states and let her be able to see things with a bit of a distance um and so we put her straight into a spanish-speaking school and didn't she knew almost no spanish and uh it worked the same way pretty much as it worked when when i was in israel which is in about six months you start to become fluent and um, I got my ass kicked a whole lot more than she did, but um, there was nonetheless, <laughs> if nothing else, a psychological ass kicking from just being in a place where you don't speak the language and have to kind of scramble and to, to keep up. And I just I found that was such a critical uh, turning point in my life, um, which probably led me into comics and you know strengthening my friendship with Seth and and uh and recognizing what it's like to be an underdog and be in a situation where you're you know being the new kid has this all sorts of psychological things that I think are positive for the long term of your life although short term it can be pretty hideous and so we arrived you know another another reason was that uh, I I really was so burnt out on on being in Bush uh, United States and reading the paper every day with new horrible news and everything that was going on and thought it might be a good opportunity for a break from that. So we arrived in, in this town called Oaxaca, um, which is oddly spelled O-A-X-A-C-A and but pronounced Oaxaca. And um, the day we arrived, the national elections had just occurred and they were potentially stolen and the town that we arrived in was having a teacher strike that had blown up a bit because the governor who had stolen the election had attacked 
the teachers who were striking, and uh, that had turned their annual strike, which had been going on for 25 years. Every year they would have this strike, and they would kind of encamp in town for about two weeks. The governor, you know, it's kind of like a back-and-forth understanding. The governor would give them their, their minimal raise, and they'd go back home. This year, the new governor, first time ever in 25 years, decided, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give them the money. I'm going to attack them and drive them out. And what, all it did was it made their strike turn into what became a seven-month strike, and uh, when, so we arrived when it when they had it started to get bigger in July, and then come October it was it, it was hitting a boiling point, and the governor periodically would have undercover police attack the strikers, who were nonviolent pretty much throughout. I mean, they per, perhaps threw rocks occasionally. They took over radio and TV stations so they could communicate with each other, but generally speaking, really. Nonviolent, but he was having his police come in and shoot at him at night. And uh, at the end of October, uh, his undercover police attacked um, one of the the uh, barricades that the strikers had set up and shot three people. And one of them was an American journalist named Brad Will. And um, he was. Uh, you can YouTube Brad Will and see Brad was filming them shooting and filmed himself being uh, murdered. Uh, it's, a, it's a really disturbing uh, video, as you might guess, but it's uh, posted there on YouTube. And uh, when that happened, of course, an American was killed, so it became an international event. And um, the president of Mexico sent in 4,500 federal troops. And so suddenly, and they, it was like the city exploded, and it was this... Uh, uh, the, the federal troops drove the strikers out of the center of town and, and took that over. And, but the strikers just re-encamped like three blocks away. And, um, they, and the strike continued for another month. And uh, um, I went from, you know, so, so this little settled time we were going to have in a small Mexican town, it turned out we were at the epicenter of a major political event. And I was working on Stop Forgetting to Remember when we got down there. And I worked on it throughout the summer on, on a really intense deadline. And I barely went downtown. And I was barely following what was happening. I mean, I'd look on the Internet some, and I'd go downtown and I'd see the strikers. But it seemed like, okay, I'd read that it had happened annually, and I figured it would wrap up at some point. But then I started to do drawings about it, especially, you know, once I got free from when I finished up Stop Forgetting in September. And... I started going down, going to town regularly, and then I realized, you know, I'm sort of, I'm ignoring something rather major that's right in front of my face, and uh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I started sketching all the time, and uh, and uh, then and taking photographs. And uh, when the federal troops came, we were getting emails from people saying, you know, like, get out of Mexico! What are you doing there? It's, it's crazy. And I, I felt like. I wanted to let people know what the reality was, which was different than it was being reported even in the New York Times. Um, I shouldn't say even, since they've <laughs> done their fair share of crap reporting. But they, I, so I started um, posting things first to friends, but then it ended up getting on somebody's website and one of my publishers in France. And, uh, and then it kind of went viral, and then a, another website asked me to write more formally, and I found myself actually drawing and writing 
regularly about it and to let people know what was going on. And then I realized, oh, you know, I'm, I'm like one of the few people consistently here because reporters kind of only came in when somebody got killed, and especially if somebody who wasn't, you know, on the rare occasion somebody who wasn't Mexican got killed. Mm-hmm. So I, I found that um, I got this newfound responsibility of, in some form to cover it, and I was really interested in, in, in uh, the, applying my art that way. And so uh, I, I kept on doing it for the entire time that we were there, and that has uh, transformed into a, a book um, called Diario de Oaxaca, Diary of Oaxaca, that um, a Mexican publisher is doing, and an American publisher called PM Press uh, is going to publish. It's going to come out officially this September, and um, it's uh, it's bilingual. I had it got translated by the Mexican publisher, and it covers what was going on during the teacher strike with all my sketchbooks, things, and some photography and my, the essays that I was writing. But also then it continues on when things settled down, and I just was writing and drawing about life in Mexico. One thing I remember from when I interviewed Baron's story was the talking about how important it is to record things by sketchbook form, to kind of see things through your eyes. Is that something that really stuck with you from him, or is something that you kind of developed in your own way? Um. He was one of my teachers, as it happened, at, when, when, at mm. Pratt. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, he was an early influence. Um, but I was keeping a sketchbook was something uh, I started when I was in high school. And uh, when I would travel, which I, I started to define myself as I'm a traveler and I draw in my sketchbook. And somehow, because when, I, when, when traveling, the sketchbook is kind of like the main outlet for capturing events, you know, some photography maybe and some journal writing, but, but my sketchbook was the, the thing. And um, I had a book published called um, Comic Trips that was um, a trip through Africa and Southeast Asia that I took with my wife. We went for eight months. And what I, the work that I did in that time period was all sketchbook. And going to Mexico was getting back in touch with my inner sketchbook. And uh, I really found that to be like the focus of the things I was doing, and since I've been back, it still it still has been the case where I, I've been trying to make that be like a, every day I'm going to draw in my sketchbook, and it ends up being a, a chronicle of your experience. And each day when you go through the shift, um, the you know the, the the things across your path that you find interesting to draw end up being a, a really good diary. If, that if for nobody else, if you look back on it yourself, you get to to see like where you were at at a given time. Um, I um, started doing a sketchbook of self-portraits, and I tried to do one a day. I still have been trying to do this. I'm on my fifth book, which is some of the things that you mentioned were posted at, at Draugr, that, that website. Um, and that it, it, just, and it ends up being another form of, of diary writing, which is this is how I feel today, and this is what I... And, and, and trying to capture something about this. And, and that's another thing that I find with comics that, I, that is strikes me as being really useful is as a historical document and something like Stop Forgetting to Remember, I was really as quickly as I could trying to get down on paper the experience that I had in a, you know, it was like a 10-year period and, uh, and then jumping back to high school memories and junior high school memories and childhood memories and, and try to get as much down as I could 
that I'd be able to look back on. And again, you know, if I didn't sell one copy, I'd at least have this document and go, you know, oh yeah, right, that's what that's what it was like. Which is what you know, when you're writing your diary, that's the same type of you know, it's the same motivation is that you might be able to look back at your younger self and get some memory of of where you were coming from. Well, it's interesting looking at your work and you're talking about this return to sketchbook because a lot of your stuff is very laborious, it looks. Like you've put in a lot of work, like using, I guess, for example, like the Spy vs. Spy stuff where you have like different layers of artwork just to make that one strip. True. So is that kind of stepping away from that? It's kind of relieving? Um, it, it can be for sure, and especially it's it's really good and and hugely important to step away from anything that has commer- smacks of commercial anything <laughs> like you, that I'm, you're worrying about. Like I'm doing this, be, you know, it's that is motivated by anything besides like it, I'm going to draw whatever I want in any style I want, whatever, and that's how I've kind of stumbled upon a lot of the different things that I've I've ever done is by spending time just fiddling around and it's very it can be difficult when you get out of school to that you feel pressure to have some style together and I mean, it's a very real pressure because you know the uh, uh, art director who gives you a job doesn't want you to show up with a brand new approach that you did on this job when they hired you because they thought you were going to do it a different way and so the sketchbook is an opportunity to do that whatever and see what kind of develops and in in my the sketchbook in Mexico, what happened incidentally was that instead of doing where I, I, I was probably much more precious with my sketchbook, where I would depending I draw on one page or I had I started drawing you know single images on one page, and then I started drawing on every part of the page, and then I started connecting things that were let's say I did a drawing of a Volkswagen in one corner, and then I did a bottle of wine in another place, and then I did a tablecloth, and then some pattern I saw, and then some mask, and I started to form them into something that was probably influenced by all the murals I saw by Diego Rivera and things like that. And it was really kind of subtle, and I actually wondered whether it was one of the atmospheres of Mexico that caused Diego Rivera and these guys to do murals that were these uh, kind of a pastiche where everything blended together and that just by being in the, all in the same place, they started to seem like they were connected. And that, that uh, you know, so I do some image of a, of a, um, a, a temple, you know, some ancient ruins, and that would be sitting on the page with somebody talking on a cell phone. And it actually seemed to make sense in a funny way. And then I started blurring that and putting a whole lot of work. I mean, maybe take a week to do a two-page spread in my sketchbook just because I would be, I'd be drawing different things at different times, and I keep coming back to that two pages, and it might take that long while I was doing other pages. And so that I'd just be layering it, not, not that different than a lot of my my um you know illustration work but um that's the kind of thing that ended up in this in this oaxaca book that um you can kind of see this progression of more individual images into it gets more and more complicated and overlaid and um and that just again kind of came naturally from from the experience of trying to get all these different elements and and in a on a daily basis running into a 15th century building and a, a you know a humvee and a and then seeing some ruins from you know bc and then and then uh um you know having a beer in front of me and of course a beer <laughs> um 
I'm going to do another quick song break because we're getting near to the uh, end of the the hour, and then we have another uh, half hour beyond this. So what would you like to hear now? Uh, let's see. And I have to remember what I sent you. We got the uh, uh, the Drexler, the Dylan, the XTC. How about the, the Drexler since uh, we're talking about Mexico? There we go. We'll be right back. Uh, Ink Stud, Seattle 1.9 FM with our guest, Peter Cooper. Terra 1.9 FM, Ink Studs, the radio show where we talk about comics. It's about uh, 3 o'clock Pacific time. I guess 6 o'clock for our guest, Peter Cooper, who's in Manhattan. Are you in Manhattan? I'm in Manhattan. In Manhattan. Upper West Side, right oh. near Columbia University. How's your Spanish? Uh, 
poco a poco, está bien. <laughs> it's, uh, it's okay. I, I, it's way worse than it should be after two years there, but... Uh, <laughs> It's, uh, I, I do have a little opportunity every day to speak Spanish here, in, in my neighborhood especially. Now, whereabouts in Mexico is Oaxaca located? It's, it, um, it's way south. Uh, it's uh, The next state down below it is Chiapas, where there was another fairly yeah. major <laughs> political event. And uh, um, where, where we were staying, I think it's uh, about parallel to the Yucatan. Uh, it's, you know, like uh, the... Uh, the latitude or longitude, I forget which one. That would be uh, latitude. latitude. is yeah. uh, um, the same as as, uh, as the Yucatan, where Cancun is, and that. So it's that on area. the Pacific uh, side. Uh, and it's it's on the Pacific side, and um, that. But it, it it's the state of Oaxaca, and also the city of Oaxaca. So I went from New York, New York to Oaxaca, Oaxaca, and the where the city is, it's up in the mountains, and you're far from the ocean, and, and actually, it's really temperate, real nice like spring-like weather all year round. Um, and, uh, and, I, and it's always had a fair amount of, of political activity there. It was one, one of the things that struck us as being, it would be, that would be a nice place to live. With. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, other people might, might say, hmm, maybe I should avoid the area with lots of political activity. Yeah, well, but you don't want to go to the area where they do the ass-kicking, you know, of the, of the liberals. Yeah. <laughs> You don't want to move next to uh, one of the um, local uh, Michiladores. That that wouldn't be fun. Yeah, well, you know, or, or the other thing we were avoiding was a big city since we live in, you know, like one of the big ones. And so it was, I was afraid it was going to not be, you know, my, my little cosmopolitan self with all the years in New York. It was going <laughs> to seem way too slow. And it wasn't the case at all. It actually has a tremendous amount of art. And there were more openings and things to do in, in the art world than yeah, we could keep up with. No, so that was fantastic. And lots of artists there that I, I met and had you know, interactions with and, and um, I helped curate a show of, of uh, local artists. And uh, you know, so it was really, really nice to find a, a, a whole other community of artists there. If only you could find a good bagel. Uh, that was tough. <laughs> I think Steve Laffler is not far from where that. He was. His daughter was going to school. His daughter and son were going to school where my daughter was. And oh. So when he he moved down there, right when when I was down there, and uh, we hung out. Excellent. I, I knew he was down somewhere around there. And, exactly there. Uh, there we go. Dog boy. Yes. Steve. La- Dog boy. Steve Laffler. Yes. Oh gosh, I hadn't heard about him in ages. Yeah, bug, bug town. And- bug town. Yeah. Yeah. Left Portland for the the sunny beaches of uh, Mexico. Mountains, oh. mountains, mountains. mountains yes, yes. Cool mountains. The cool mountains. The as you yeah. said, the spring-like weather. Yep. Now let's talk about stop forgetting to remember. Um, I guess this is something you've been working on a long time, and some of the pieces have been worked out in anthologies and whatnot. And this kind of brings together a lifetime work. Is that what I want to say? Oh, do we still have you there? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was asking, uh, stop forgetting to remember, is it, is, what was the, the choice of doing that, considering it's not politically pointed like your other work? Maybe. Um, well, curiously, I, I actually have found that the, you know, the personal is political and all that, that the, when you cover subject matter that's, you know, I mean, talking about 
uh, drug use and sex and, uh, um, you know, a lot of these things that are that a lot of us have experienced ends up being quite political. And in fact, I probably had more trouble uh, from uh, pieces I did that had sexual topics in them than I did from the overtly political things. So, and there's, you know, and I weaved in a lot of different, I mean, 9-11's part of it, and uh, and Bush becoming president, and, and uh, the impact of that and my feelings about that are are part of it. But I'm sort of perpetually trying to figure out new ways to talk about all the different things that are of interest and concern. And um, I find that, that humor actually is my favorite way to, to uh, convey things, and I think m- most effective. Um, Mad Magazine was a huge uh, influence, and that seeing how they did use politics and um, and humor together, and um, was was a real was really eye opening, and I have often forgotten how important that is, and so I, I really I really like to try to talk about a lot of things, but do it in a way that that's more with with more humor or and and maybe more um, more personalized, and um, and so stop forgetting was was part of that, and. Uh, um, it's also, I guess, I've been trying to put my toe in every pond that comics <laughs> can, you know, that, that has uh, the, the Petri dishes out there. And sometimes it's, it's sort of like jur- journalism and, uh, you know, since I have a cross-section of influences, Crumb is certainly a huge influence in all those years of reading these autobio stories. And um, that, that's one whole area that I, that I like to explore. And so I might do a wordless book. In fact, the, my, my uh, previous book was Sticks and Stones, which was a wordless allegory. And then the book before that was Metamorphosis, which is, you know, adapting somebody else's writing. And that I, it, I seem to continuously move, jump from, you know, to a different rock that is doing something completely different, but using comics as, as the connector. So can, and so if I do something like a stencil strip that you, with no words, and then the next thing I'm doing is not likely to be that. And, and just for if nothing else for boredom, you know, the boredom issue is pretty big. <laughs> that I just feel like, wow, I really used up the whole, the whole stencil and wordless thing. Um, and I actually also did a children's book in, in, between, in between there. And um, so uh, that, that, that's some of it as well. But uh, I really enjoy doing autobiographical comics, and like I said, not, if nothing else, if I don't sell one copy, I end up with a document that says um, that this is what that time period was like for me, um, and I have one really sad publisher. <laughs> <laughs> so can we look forward to the Peter Cooper Captain America? Uh, I did Captain America. A little, little uh, in Captain America Red, White, and Blue, I did a two-page strip where uh, Captain America is fighting the Red Skull, and uh, he throws his shield and knocks out the Red Skull and um, discovers that the A that is normally on his shirt is turned into an N, and he and then he's got like a sw- he rips his shirt open, he's got a swastika, and he rips his mask off, and he's Hitler, and then the Red Skull comes over, and there's a heart-shaped panel where they're kissing, and then... <laughs> 
Right. And the last panel, he's waking up and he's saying, that's the last time I have the rare bit K rations. The rare um, the one bit, thing uh, that, oh, that uh, <laughs> um, Marvel would not let me do when I did that piece, because I did it from Marvel, was uh, I had Bucky Barnes next to him in bed saying, Cap, Cap, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> was, they, they, just, they, they drew the line right there, but I, I felt like I had crossed the line so far that it was okay. <laughs> Violence is okay. But men um, sharing a bed. No, well, actually, okay. what I just finished doing was a Treehouse of Horror Simpson story. So, on the completely now for something completely different category. There we go. How did it feel to be taking over uh, Spy versus Spy for uh, Mr. Proyas? Well, it, unexpected to say the least. I wasn't. Uh, I didn't approach them. They they approached me about it, and uh, I had done the system for Vertigo, and that was all wordless. And so, and I also did this comic strip, Eye of the Beholder, which I was syndicating in alternative papers, and that was also wordless. So I I guess arrows were pointing in my direction when they were talking about revamping Mad back in '96, and. So they uh, they called me in and asked me if I wanted to do a tryout for it, and I think they were asking several people. And I almost said no on the spot because I thought I don't want to do somebody else's characters. There's going to it's it's entirely too much. I'm, I was really headed in the trajectory of wanting to, uh, aside from my own writing, have it be you know real more political or something or other. I, I was I was on on my high political horse at that <laughs> particular point and i just felt like oh that'd be somebody else's thing and i'm not going to follow you know proheas and i went home and thought well you know what's what can it hurt so i i did a tryout piece and thought all right well i'm going to just push it and i'll do it in stencils and that way they're sure to say no quickly <laughs> and i will have done my one spy versus spy and it turned out that that was uh a direction they, they wanted to shake up the direction and so then i thought well okay I'll do it for a year, and, you know, how bad can that be? And then every year there's kept on being some other reason why it seemed like a good idea. And when I was really starting to feel burnt out, um, Mad went color. And uh, that gave me the opportunity to do a whole other set of things. So uh, um, that was, that was uh, um, you know, more impetus to keep going with it. And... Uh, um, and it's it just, you know, it's hung around. And now, now that Mad's quarterly, excuse me, I'm getting another call, so I'll ignore that. <laughs> um, now that Mad's quarterly, um, it, it's not going to be so much part of my life. Although there is the possibility that I'll end up doing some kind of um, uh, graphic novel, spy versus spy graphic novel. I'm, I'm not quite sure yet. The gag strip that never ends. Yep, yep, keeps going. But, you know, I mean, I, I've convinced myself periodically that, you know, it was based originally on the Cold War. There are no winners. You know, they, there's, there's only us losers. And uh, um, that, uh, you know, the, the futility of war and all that, which is it's really actually itchy and scratchy, and uh, that, that uh, or vice versa. And that um, it's really fun just to... to get inside my 10-year-old self <laughs> periodically and blow things up. What about Grace Spy? Uh, she shows up once in a while. The last one I did and in, uh, in, in the latest issue has the Grace Spy. Oh, okay. Is that in she's, Mad she's 500? Re yep. The, 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 the first quarterly issue. Now that it's in color, will there be a Red Spy, a Green Spy? 
it's you know it's been in color for oh I don't know eight nine years now. Wow. Yeah. So um, there was there was a collection that came out maybe a year or two ago that was um, of uh, my first ten years, and it goes to color pretty quickly. Maybe I did two years, two three years of of black and I'm in in my eleventh or twelfth year now. Wow. Gulp. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the stencil process. Uh, well, uh, it's completely insane and highly toxic. Uh, <laughs> I I uh, do a pencil drawing, and then I cut the stencil with an. I, I photocopy the pencil, and then I cut the stencil with a, an exacto knife, and it's it's loose photocopy paper. So it's made, that makes it really easy to be more fine about the cutting, and I cut out the large areas that are going to be the solid blacks, uh, you know, or dark areas in it. Um, as much as I can, but, you know, I've, the panel borders are not in there, and I leave a lot of background out that I'll put in later. Then I, I put that on watercolor paper, and I spray with spray paint. It's, there's no airbrush or anything like that. It's just cans of spray paint. Um, red paint. And then without moving the stencil, I spray black paint on top of that, and that gives you a slightly glowing underglow of red. And um, that... Um, uh, then, then, so you have this sort of base image, and then I light box from the original pencil and put the panel borders in and all the different details and maybe collage in, you know, a, a uh, toxic waste, do not touch sign or something like that, and, um, and, and then uh, watercolor and colored pencil and a little white paint. And so it's sort of, it's, it's fairly fully painted by the time I'm done with it. And I do it uh, same size also, so that it, what you see in print in the magazine is the size that that the original is. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope totally. it works. For some reason, nobody else seems to have t- taken up this style as being a great idea for comics. No, especially no since the uh, invention of Photoshop would make uh, a little less messy, but not as exciting. Uh, well, you, you know, there, there's the X factor that you get from doing something like that. And I like that very much, but I, I am moving away from it because it's just really toxic. And even though I have a spray booth and I wear a mask and wear rubber gloves and all this stuff, it, it's still plain old. It, it is toxic, and I, I hate that aspect of it. And so, you know, there's something about doing an illustration about the uh, degrading environment while I'm using spray paint. Yes, it's a little too, <laughs> like, shadang. What am I doing again? What does Seth have to say? Uh, about about spray paint or about about uh, about, about, everything? Uh, about the spray paint uh, aspect of uh, doing. Well, he said, he has to say you ripped that off from me because <laughs> the first time I saw any, anybody doing that in that way was Seth, and I saw an illustration that he he did, and he did he did a um, a strip called "You Don't Have to Fuck People Over to Survive," which is also mm-hmm. um, a, a book he did, which is. Um, it's about to have its third printing, I mean, the third reissuing from a third publisher. Um, and uh, he did that uh, strip in stencils. And uh, um, that uh, I just, you know, it, there was something about the immediacy of it and the sort of action street art that it, it just, it connects to something old, like the German Expressionist work and woodcut work, and yet has a sort of quality that is very modern. And that I just, I love that, and there's, there's really no other way to achieve that. You'd have to work pretty hard in Photoshop to get something that looks like that. 
And um, a lot of the, in, in Oaxaca, there was a tremendous amount of street art that was done in these giant stencils. In fact, I've included a bunch of those in my book that I was, I was chronicling a lot of the work on the walls that was slowly, was, was disappearing as, you know, somebody had put up some image of, of rioters throwing a Molotov cocktail at the police um, done in, a, in this giant elaborate stencil. And then, you know, a week later it would be painted over. And so I, I, I grabbed a lot of imagery that, that was all real temporary. And um, it always just had this, like, every time I saw it, it was like a, a beautiful punch in the face, a happy punch in the face that uh, I, I just, it, I would have been drawn to. And um, I was doing linoleum prints when I was in art school, and I did some illustration work like that, and I found it so labor-intensive, and it, when you go to print linoleum or woodcut, it's reversed. And I loved that aspect of it because it, it actually again, we had that surprise element. Um, and I, I seem to be drawn to art forms that you don't know where you're going to get till the end. Uh, even like with Scratchboard, which is um, this chalk-covered paper that I used to do metamorphosis and, in mm. fact, also, um, I stop forgetting to remember, is all done on Scratchboard. And you can scratch into the lines and get this slightly woodcut feeling, and you, it, it's all, will print... You know, you could photocopy it down to postage stamp size and it'll still print perfectly, but you can scratch the lines to make it look like it's almost a half tone. And mm -hmm. I've just always liked that kind of work. And Eric Drucker is another, as a, a longtime friend and another person whose work I just loved, uh, also uses Scratchboard. And that there's just this kind of immediate oomph that that kind of work gets that I've been always drawn to. I saw in Toronto, I picked up these really wonderful books by this uh, German woman, Anka Fuschenberger. Oh, yeah, she's fantastic. And, and they're incredible. They're mostly scratchboard, and it's just the most, like, I don't know how to describe it, but very incredible. Check out her website. Well, also, somebody like Thomas Ott, who uh, Fantagraphics has published a whole series of his beautiful wordless scratchboard books. That's all scratchboard. When you see something that looks like it's kind of somewhere between woodcut and, and very careful cross-hatching lines, that often is, is uh, scratchboard. And, and, uh, and also, uh, I got to see some uh, a Wally Wood original scratchboard that looks fantastic. Huh. I, I was wondering, you've been involved in comics for a long time, and political comics, and I was just wondering... If, what what do you think of the the younger generation of cartoonists these days that to me seem to be politically disconnected? Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm disconnected from a lot of the work that's coming out, especially having been gone for a couple of years. But I'm encountering a lot of very politically motivated comics that are being done in World War Three by a lot of young people. So I do I keep seeing a very political comics done that way but there's there's a lot of you know things autobiographical work and um a cross-section of things that people are doing that i i think is is very interesting i mean so much is going on in comics there's there's such an explosion of work it's really hard to keep up with all the things that are happening and and the um and i i guess i i i figure that a lot of the people are doing what i did which is they're in the process of developing their voice and deciding what they're going to do. And, you know, somebody like um, Crum did a plenty of work that was you wouldn't consider political, but he's done some really seriously political work. And there's a lot of, again, these, the personal work can often be quite political. Mm -hmm. um, and I also, you know, I, I surely don't mind 
work that is there to entertain and and uh, be um, you know I, I'm I'm not currently feeling like boy the young people sure don't have any enthusiasm for doing anything because in, in part while we motivated enough to get a different kind of president in the United States and so my sense of of a younger generation getting motivated is a little more raised uh, it doesn't seem like it's all apathy and I don't know you know it's, a, it's such a mixed bag because I, I feel like that the word politics is it, it sounds like lead shoes a lot of the time when you're saying it's political work and it immediately I think oh man this is going to be boring and tutorial and I, I'm, I'm really always trying to find a way to be really entertaining when I do the different things that I do and um, and and look for work that that manages to straddle those things. If, if something ends up being too political, that too, it's, it's easy for for a lot of political work to get self righteous and um, then not communicate and um, be, um, you know, so sure of of what it's saying that it it uh, it's not doesn't it almost doesn't care if the audience is listening. So dogmatic. And, yeah, it gets dogmatic, and I, and I and I always fear that in my own work. And uh, that's that's one of the real pitfalls. But I I feel like we're, odds are pretty good. Everybody is going to is rubbing up against these real things that are going on in our lives, and that that it's like I mean, politics is kind of like a um, a fire on your couch. Where where if you say oh, I'm not into politics, it's like well, it's it's burning there, and it is. <laughs> affecting you and you are going to have to react to it even if it's you know moving over and eventually you know leaving the building before you catch on fire yourself and i think that some of the comics that people are doing that is talking about the current state of mind includes that quality that we're all experiencing of us being on this kind of precipice and you know, everybody's reacting differently, and so there's a lot of information in a lot of the things that people are doing that isn't overtly political, but yet will have that uh, have aspects of of our current history in it. Uh, yeah, I, I think I got to disagree with what Colin said as far as um, younger cartoonists not having to start these political bent because one thing we're seeing right now is a whole generation of cartoonists that kind of have a different viewpoint on the world and a certain psychological impact on what you're raised in in the bush years and i i think we have yet to see really how that's going to result in a lot of work i think a lot of new folks we see coming out right now are really in their formative years and yeah it, it takes a really long time to get your chops together for comics i'm i'm amazed when i see somebody doing you know that very together work at a really early stage because there's just so many aspects to it, and I, I mean, we are now a much more visually oriented culture, and mm. and there is a tremendous amount of sequential thinking and exposure to, you know, through the internet and a lot of different things that makes newer generations way more visually adept, I think, which is why they, there is more work that s seems to move forward faster. I mean, when I was in art school, there was no comics class. Most of the teachers I had regarded comics as not art and discouraged them. And it was now, you know, I go back to Pratt and I'll give a talk in a sequential art class and that sequential thinking is taught. Yeah. And it's part of the curriculum, and it's it's 
so much part of what they, that you know they they woke up and said um, you know you have to be get with this program in teaching students because this is what's what is being demanded of them when they go out and to to work. Um, it's really interesting. I mean, it's one of the really great things of having been involved in comics for such a long time is that I was working in an art form and we were all working in an art form that we were being told wasn't an art form. And it's nice to know absolutely solidly that what you believe is true, even in the face of uh, the larger population telling you that it's not, because it's clarifying. It's like, well, you know, I don't have one shred of doubt that what I'm doing is an art form. And so if you tell me it's not, then, you know, if the art world as a whole says it's not, then I just know what bullshit the art world is. Fuck them. And that it's just not, you know, and it, that's like, oh, okay, right. So you guys are, are actually totally myopic and uh, um, that, you know, being utterly convinced about something and then having the good fortune, unlike a lot of our, our predecessors, that we actually have been around to see it come around in the larger publishing world. You know, I went from only being able to work for small publishers who paid me almost nothing and had trouble getting distribution in any bookstore to Random House publishing my books mm-hmm. with, you know, uh, you know, first print runs of 15,000 copies and, and, you know, it being distributed to every, you know, Barnes & Noble or whatever easily. And, and this being the new big publishing expanding area, which is now, you know, I think in certain ways contract, there's some contraction there, but it, it uh, nonetheless, it's really heartening to have something that you know from your core starting when you were 11 and then and, and having something pushing against that, having lots and lots of people saying that it's not a value and then having it be proven true. It's like being Sarah Connor and telling everybody that the world is... <laughs> I tell you, the robots are going to take over. They're coming. They're coming. I have to cut us off. It's that time. It's only been five hours, though. <laughs> <laughs> the fastest five hours. Thank you so much, Peter. I Thank think, you. Um, you. You ended on a pretty good note there. Um, an appropriate note, maybe. The Sarah Connor note. <laughs> the Sarah Connor note. There we go. Obama is a robot. That's what we'll yeah. leave it on. But I don't. Re- I don't recommend Terminator Four. I barely even watched three. I probably won't watch four, except I do love the listening to Christian Bale swear like a truck driver. Um, thank you so much. Thank you once again, Peter. And uh, I look forward to more comics. Look forward to the uh, Oaxaca book. Very good. So, thank you. Bye bye. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye. Bye. Um, I'm going to wind this up real quick. Up next is the French Connection, and next week we'll be chatting with uh, Dave Lapp and I have a recorded interview. Uh, they'll be playing with uh, Brian Sendelbeck. Um, smell of Steve. Used to be in the disc in the Terminal City years ago. Colin doesn't know. He used to come up for a lot of comic conventions at the Heritage Hall. Um, new collection, Planet of Beer from Dark Horse and Dave Lapp's book, um, Drop In from Conundrum. Good Canadian boy. Let's support the Canadians. Up next, French Connection. Of war and peace, the truth just twists its curfew, gull it glides. Upon four-legged forest clouds, the cowboy angel rides. With his candle lit into the sun, though its glow is waxed in black. 